0: The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au.
1: Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily.
0: And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham, councillor. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe.
1: Um, did you uh, uh, watch Alan Fels of the National Press Club yesterday?
0: I listened to him on news radio. While I was driving around and, um, look, very clever move by the unions to commission him to, you know pretend he's doing a government review when it's a union review, and then for the press club to give him a platform. And I thought he'd come up with a whole bunch of interesting ideas, and it was, uh, he's still got his mojo after 30 years of being the uh, cartel killer.
1: Yeah, it's all about the red glasses, I reckon. He's hes, he's uh, like
0: you, he's into his 70s and he's still going strong. You and him are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you we, just won't retire.
1: No, that's right. No, we get on very well. I really like. I really like Fels. He's great. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, look, uh, I actually wrote a column a while ago saying that um, what we need to do is go back to the Fels era of naming and shaming price gougers. And um, about a week later, the ACTU appointed Fels to do <laughs> the review. So I've taken credit for the existence of the review. And, uh, I mean, basically what he's proposing is uh, uh, souping up the ACCC's uh, power to enforce competition. Mm. Uh, he's got one uh, – he's only proposing regulation of one price, uh, and that is airports, which he which he's saying should be uh, regulated like utilities, gas and electricity yep,
0: and so on. agree with that. Um,
1: but um, apart from that, he's not suggesting any regulation of price apart from airports. He's suggesting um, the – the uh, ACCC be souped up and its powers boosted. Uh, the other thing is um, he's also suggesting that the um, uh, the GST era of explicit legislation uh, allowing the ACCC to name and shame, which, which existed between uh, 2000 and 2003, should be reinstated. Um, so, I mean, uh, look, the ACCC is has the ability to name and shame or, you know, call out companies.
0: They don't do it enough, though.
1: But they don't do it enough, and it's partly because uh, there's no legislation to, that explicitly says they can, yeah. which there was uh, after the GST. GST was introduced, which mm. and the GST, obviously, the, the Howard government, did that in order to sort of support its uh, introduction of the GST, but then they just let it lapse. After 2003. It's interesting because, um, as I pointed out to Alan Fells this morning, um, that lapsed in late 2022, not Mm. 2003. He finished up in June 23, sorry, uh, 2003, not 23. He finished up in 2003. So, for the last six months of his tenure, he didn't have that legislation, but he kept just doing it anyway. Right. And so it In a sense, that last six months of Velsa's tenure at the ACCC shows what they can do, Yeah, really. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: He's 20 years out of that job and he's still going strong. I mean, I love the fact that he did the remuneration review for the uh, Gillard-Rudd governments and gave us the unique two-strikes remuneration regime, which is a a world's best... uh, uh, remuneration oh, he, I forgot power. about that. He gave us yeah, that, did he? he yeah, it was right. his recommendation. Oh, no one else go. in the world has uh, heard of it before or has done it since, but it, it would have stopped things like Elon Musk getting a $55 billion pay deal. You know, all the rorts that go on in executive remuneration, uh, that reform... Really tilted the power back to the shareholders. Well, it
1: uh, gave them uh, the the ability to protest against other things. Yeah,
0: than than pay. Well, correct it, and it's it's the ultimate name and shame because anyone who gets a strike gets all over the media, named and shamed for being greedy and being struck down by their shareholders. So it's been a wonderful name and shame power, and uh, it was Felsey's idea. It was. What about paying whistleblowers? I'm not. It's an interesting one. I, I probably generally support it because I agree whistleblowers are normally pretty scared to, to to step up. The Americans pay whistleblowers. So, how much? Oh, well, you know, I don't know what the exact figure is, but just you know, you can get a reward if you dob in a cartel or a price fixer. They'll uh, pay you a success fee. I mean, I guess it's the ultimate. You wouldn't have thought there'd be a market for that, but <laughs> but you know, you got to you got to encourage more people to step up because everyone's too scared to. You know, farmers against woolies and coals and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. No, that's all right.
0: And also, I'd love to see a a divestiture power. I still think that's the better solution. But, uh, you know, he comes in and says, coals and woolies, you've got too much power. You've each got to sell 40 supermarkets. Like, that is not in our law. It is in the law in many other countries. The forced divestiture powers. So, I don't know why we don't ever do it, but we don't do it. We don't do it. We don't do it. No. And so it's very hard to unscramble the egg once you've… Yeah, I think we just… I think in
1: this country we're just going to accept, oh, well, this is Australia. We can't… You know, we have duopolies and triopolies, so that's just the way it is here, you know.
0: I mean, just looking at… Speaking of, you know, duopolies and, like, even the results out this morning, I mean, REA Group and a realestate.com… Their Profits up another 22%. You know, they're benefiting, they said, from the 12% increase in house prices and the 8% increase in rents over the last period. That is a natural monopoly. It's now worth $24 billion. And Coles is only worth $22 billion. So this little Westfield is worth $16 billion. So this company that has no assets, it just has a monopoly over real estate, well, domain competes, but they've got a dominant market share in real estate advertising, is now worth $24 billion. And uh, and then you look at Transurban, their results out today, they've got monopolies over toll roads in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. You know, they they can carry $24 billion in debt. They've got an enterprise value of $64 billion. You know, it's just been an absolute bonanza. And... Um, They've only finally been blocked from buying something by the ACCC when they said no you can't buy the East Link in Melbourne a few months ago and apart from that they've been able to buy virtually every toll road in Australia except for two. Should yeah. never have been allowed to buy all those toll no, roads. That's
1: right, I agree with that. Totally. But
0: fourteen toll roads. That's just ridiculous.
1: Um, the other thing that happened this week was the RBA uh, decision to not change interest rates. Uh, and it was also a new regime. What do you think of what do you think of the new regime?
0: Look, I like the the new regime. I think it makes more sense to have two-day board meetings and eight a year. Uh, It gives more power to the non-executive directors, the independent directors, whereas previously I think it was a bit just rock up, management tells you what they're doing and then off you go, tick the box, whereas now it's going to be a more lengthy, considered discussion. Still don't like the fact that you've got effectively an executive chair, so the better governance model would have been to to go to the traditional non-executive chair and then a CEO. And, and Michelle Bullock does have a lot of power now through the press conferences. And your point, I think, is interesting as to is she in line at her press conference messaging with the uh, actual written documentation that the board is signing off of? And you know, occasionally you were saying Jerome Powell strays from that, you know, gets a bit ahead of the curve. So, look, anything which gives journalists more power and there's more transparency, I'm a supporter of. I thought the opening press conference could have done with you there, r- ripping in a few... Uh, tough questions off the long run. Why weren't you up for that historic occasion, Alan? <laughs> Left it to <laughs> Take, your son, did you?
1: Takes a bit to get me onto a plane these days, <laughs> partly because of my uh, knee replacement. It's a bit of a <laughs> bit of a nuisance. I anyway,
0: should have run a hybrid and let you uh, dial in a, a question live from Melbourne. This turn up. I look, uh,
1: my son was there and uh, he, he represented one- the family. <laughs>
0: Because <laughs> I think of a occasionally. And there you, were the, four
1: people from the ABC there. Yes,
0: yeah. So you'd have been crowding them out. So oh, sure. um,
1: yeah. You know. Um, uh, so but you look, s- uh, yeah. the, the one thing I would say is that I've been reading uh, 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 this week, I've been reading the, the RBA review that came out uh, just about a year ago, um, and which uh, was scathing of the board, right? And basically said they're not uh, expert enough, not skilled enough, and they need to be sacked. That's kind of what the review said. And they, were, and, and they basically said that the board had been snowed by the management. Correct. Um, yep. Over a long period of time. And the government accepted the review uh, and agreed to sack them uh, and replace them with a monetary policy board of experts uh, but they gave them 15 months' notice. Mm. Like, still hasn't happened. They, happen. they uh, like, one of the questions was: was the November rate hike a mistake? Right? Well,
0: the honest answer is yes.
1: Well, uh, who knows? I mean, you know. But th- what I would say is that the that rate hike and the one in May and Ju- ones in May and June were done by boards that had been that th- where the government had agreed that they were incompetent essentially. I mean, that's a bit of a strong word. But they haven't,
0: probably, spilled, they haven't spilled the board either. I mean, all no, those no. directors are still there serving right. out their so terms. All,
1: all those directors are still there. Those directors made those three rate hike decisions. In fact, by the time they finish up, they will have made 14 decisions, Yeah, uh, probably three of which would increase rates, but every decision is a big one, whether to yeah. increase rates or not. Even if it's on hold, it's a big decision. So the a board that was uh, described as basically incompetent – which the government had agreed has made fourteen decisions since
0: that time, right? Well, what the hell? Is so you're going saying on? they should have been summarily dismissed and frog marched out the door I, immediately? I, I, are you? I mean, that's a bit rough.
1: I'm not saying that. I'm saying that. Uh, it's, it's, I'm saying that the eighteen months between when b- between that the release of that review and their first meeting, the first meeting of the Monetary Policy Board of experts yeah. in August, the eight, that'll be 18 months, yeah. is too long. Yeah, but rather so than, than them making
0: bad decisions, isn't it just the case that they just continued to rubber stamp what management was telling them to do as they'd done throughout the history of the Reserve well, Bank?
1: Well, of course, they would say that they don't just rubber stamp. Yeah. They ask yeah. questions and all that stuff. Um, uh, but, you know. you would be good mean, to see
0: their voting records going forward. I think that'll be a So
1: that's the thing that's going to happen good from... Yeah. That's gonna ha- this is what's going to happen from August, is yeah. that the, the, we're going to see what the voting was. Yeah on the Monetary Policy Board. But we won't see their forecasts of interest rates as we do with the Federal Reserve's uh, Federal Open Market Committee, Uh, but we'll see the votes, right? And so the question I have is, uh, what if... So there's going to be nine on the Monetary Policy Board, uh, uh, including the Governor, the Deputy Governor, and the Treasury Secretary. So what if the vote is 5-4, right? And we're not told who is who. uh, In which... Uh, is, the, is the three uh, are the two the governor and the deputy governor and the treasury secretary in the five or the four in other words were they rolled or not Yes, yeah. yeah, well, and we're not going to know that we're not going to no. be told whether the executive of the RBA was rolled yes and I think that's a material we probably should be told that Yeah, we should be told that yeah
0: it's a bit like Mark Dreyfus in opposition saying ministerial diaries should be public and now he's resisting making ministerial diaries <laughs> public even though that regime operates in other jurisdictions. So yeah they we haven't be, uh, gone full transparency in terms of voting disclosure
1: Well we, uh, yeah I, they probably think that the, the executives will never be rolled yeah and that may be true I'll
0: give you a little little I did this twice at Council, once at Melbourne, once at Manningham is we changed the meeting procedures of council meetings to say that every vote, the minutes said who was for and against on every meeting. Because previously, you used to have to call for a division and then you all stand up and have your vote confirmed and the minutes only said carried or not. It didn't say what the vote was. Whereas now, every resolution it says who voted for and against automatically, so no one has to call the division anymore because the voting, the minutes capture the actual vote anyway. These are just little transparency tweaks you can make that fully discloses what a councillor did over four years for and against what, whereas previously it's just carried and you don't even know who voted for and against.
1: Well, I don't think we'll ever find out who voted for and against the RBA, but um, I, yeah, anyway. I th- yeah. So look, uh, before we move on to questions, um, do you want to say you've got something about News Corp? I think, uh, which is a, a, a stunning surprise to me, Stephen.
0: Well, I mean, the results out this morning, and I was just—I always like Robert Thompson, their CEO. He—he's uh, very colourful, and they're in negotiations with the AI companies. So they're trying to ex- extract big what dollops of cash, like they got out of Google and Facebook. And his quote and talk about the discussions. His quote today is. We patently prefer negotiation to litigation, courtship to courtrooms. But let's be clear, in my view, those who repurpose without approval are stealing and are undermining the very act of creativity. Counterfeiting is not creating, and the AI world is replete with content counterfeiters. Now, give us a pile of cash or we'll keep slamming you in the press and through our outlets, this is the message from the Murdochs and Robert Thompson there. Always colourful, Robert Thompson.
1: Uh, okay, we'll go to questions, but first, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: InvestSmart's Professionally Managed Accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and The Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Jane says,
1: a few of my friends have shared the the clip, a clip of Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute speaking at the National Press Club comparing Australia and Norway with regards to mining, fossil fuels, taxes and subsidies and higher education costs and assistance. Uh, is this true and accurate? Surely the Australian government gets heaps of revenue from mining taxes. I was hoping you might be able to discuss this on your podcast. Um, so what Richard said was uh, that uh, Norway taxes... Uh, it's um, fossil fuel, oil and gas, um, pro- uh, produces and gives free education. Australia charges for education and doesn't tax.
0: Or subsidises. He says that the, sub- the subsidies we give. subsidises fossil fuels, that's right.
1: Subsidises fossil fuels and um, charges huge amounts of money for higher education. In fact, it gets more from hex than it does from the P the petroleum
0: resource rent tax. Yeah, but the PRRT is just one tiny slither of tax paid by the resources industry. It's just the offshore gas element. Um, Queensland government is getting $10 billion a year in coal royalties out of the world's highest coal taxing regime. So it's a little bit, you know, it was cute to say it, but, uh, and, you know, the other point I was going to say is that Fortescue, as an example of a fossil fuel producer, um. They, they, they've they've paid royalties of of Yeah, 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 I know, know, but but they paid they paid corporate tax of over a billion and royalties of over a billion, and they made four point eight billion after tax. So, I would say that the mining sector, the resource sector, is is paying hundreds of billions in tax, and it's a huge sector, and the government's getting a big whack, and that's why we're having a mining boom, and that's why um you know so i just don't think it's right to say that they're subsidized net which is the claim well we do
1: subsidize fossil fuels i think we should not subsidize fossil fuels that is to say pay diesel subsidies or whatever they he's talking about look richard dennis has been on about this for years and you know fair enough only uh, good on him um
0: Look, I do agree we should give more relief to, to students who currently owe $78 billion in help debts, but don't forget that university graduates also become the highest earners and most privileged people in Australia. So shouldn't they pay something for the ticket to become privileged, which is a university degree? Yeah, something, yeah. but maybe not as much as they're currently yeah, paying. Yeah,
1: look, I think a hex is okay. Look, but I do think that, uh, you know, we should look at Norway's um, taxing...
0: Regime, and I think they, you know, I don't, I think we don't tax them enough. Um, well, I agree. I mean, the iron ore royalty in WA is only seven and a half percent. It should be twenty percent, like in Queensland with coal. So yeah. there's, it's different products in different states and overall. But anyone who's making a fortune, you're still paying thirty percent company tax at the end of the day. So the feds are the biggest beneficiaries. They're getting thirty percent of anything that a that a fossil fuel company is making. <laughs> All right, Omar says. What, in your view, are the main differences between today and and the time of the great inflation in the 1970s? What do we have as mechanisms nowadays that will avoid the economy experiencing another high round of inflation and high interest rates and potentially an inevitable recession, as in the Volcker era?
1: Oh well, we're we're in an era of disinflation now, not not inflation. I mean, inflation obviously was kicked off by the um, uh, the, the oil the oil shock of 19. 19- Seventy three, and then wage spirals, but but underpinned by the inflation out of the Vietnam War, the spending, the government spending on that, Um, and then the other oil shock of nineteen seventy nine, when after the Iran Revolution. So, um, you know, we we haven't had those things. Mm. Uh, We've had the pandemic, we've had a GFC. Um, We're in an era of disinflation caused by um, slowing population growth.
0: And China was the great
1: disinflation force, wasn't it? Anyone who
0: was overcharging, you'd just go and move your production to China and it it just cheapened everything.
1: Yeah. Cheap labour. Look, I mean, in the 70s we had Japan um, also doing a similar thing, exporting exporting disinflation. Um, uh, But, yeah, I mean, look.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but the big risks are, you know, like Vietnam War, uh, if we have a big, global conflict, that will be massively di- di- uh, inflationary, like we saw initially with Ukraine and, uh, yeah. and and Russia. And I think the other thing is you get monopolies that are abusing power, like the 30% Google, Apple tax, you know Microsoft, uh, Coles, Woolies pricing power. So I think that's the other thing that we've got to watch out for with inflation now is really working to allow new interests to come in and not allowing powerful monopolies to gouge.
1: Um Stuart's got a question for you, I think, Stephen. I've received a number of script offers over the years whereby I don't receive cash but shares in the suitor as payment for the shares in the company I own. The process always involves an independent expert report telling me whether the offer is fair and reasonable. That is, the expert makes an assessment of the value of, the share, of, uh, of my shares. The question is, why don't I get an independent valuation of the company I'm being asked to accept shares in? I already understand the value of my company... In most cases, I'm taking a much bigger dilution in my company's assets than the acquirer is in the assets of theirs. As the decision maker in the transaction, I would like the independent expert to help me out as to the valuation of the shares I'm being offered as payment.
0: I mean, it is a really interesting issue. Remember when Channel 9 bought Fairfax? They did it because their share price had popped because of the success of, of Married at First Sight so the stock had got up to 250 so suddenly their shares were overvalued and they said here Fairfax have some of this overvalued maths uh, pumped up stock in exchange for your uh, domain and uh, and radio and newspaper assets so but look it can go both ways and I'll give you a really interesting example when Facebook bought Instagram shortly before Facebook floated in 2012 it, everyone, the headline at the time was Facebook buys it for a billion US dollars. Now, 300 million of that was cash and 23 million Facebook shares were offered as well to both the staff and the, the non-staff shareholders. Now, those shares, if held today and had all vested, would be worth $108 billion. So, Facebook blundered by giving too much of their company away for Instagram and the the Instagram sellers were incredibly smart saying, no, we only want 30% cash. We can see some upside in Facebook. We'll take 70% of our payment in Facebook shares and they've gone absolutely through the roof. But a big part of that.
1: Going through the roof was due to has the been success due to uh, of of Instagram.
0: Instagram and the, the founder right. stayed until 2018, so it was a win-win, a good example of why you do script because the selling party has skin in the game and incentive to grow the combined company. Yeah, but, he's,
1: but but our man here, what's his name, Stuart, uh, makes a fair point. We should have a valuation of both sides, right? Yeah,
0: if, but I mean, think- the market is valuing a stock every day. It's not like you're being asked to buy shares in something new. You know, if if, if
1: Sure, but yeah, then you, what's the point of expert valuation at all?
0: Well, that's right. Well, the valuation should be looking at is it a fair split? Um,
1: between the two, Between sure.
0: the two, yeah. I mean, the worst one I can remember was when Billiton and BHP merged, and silly old BHP gave away 42% of the combined shares for a pile of rubbish from the South African uh, uh, main yeah, chances that was, at uh, Billiton. That was really bad. And that cost the country over $100 billion in hindsight. So, you know, just be careful in dealing in script.
1: Alex says, dovetailing with your entertaining... Oh, no, it's your turn. Go ahead.
0: Dovetailing with your entertaining robot chat in a recent episode. What are your thoughts for the future of employment given the advent of automation and the apparent inevitable widespread AI implementation? Will human workers become obsolete? Will the government legislate to limit the use of AI? Will discussions around universal basic income become more prevalent as a Gen Xer. I'm worried. What do you think?
1: So I had, uh, my book club meeting last night, um, at, uh, Chris's place in Fitzroy. And uh, we discussed a book about AI by Stuart Russell called human compatible. And, um, cause we'd all read the book and, you know, had the discussion. So, uh, and it was my recommendation. So I had to open the discussion as I usually, as we do. And, um, I made a couple of points. One is that uh, um, that I think that what we've got, what we're heading into, well, so f- firstly is AI is fundamentally a product. We need to understand it as just that. What's going on is all these companies are developing, a- uh, 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 developing products for sale. And the purpose of the products and what they're hoping that the buyers of them will do is to replace human beings. Companies will buy AI in order to replace human beings, as they've been doing with robots to replace human beings in manufacturing uh, factories,
0: ATM machines replacing human beings—been going on for hundreds of years. Sure.
1: So that that will probably accelerate. I think. Um, uh, uh, I think that the the other form, the other part, a lot of companies are developing a domestic servant robots uh, that clean up the house, make the bed, do the dishes, cook, and so on. And I'm pretty sure that in a few years' time. Uh, these things will appear in Harvey Norman, and cost wow. and cost five thousand bucks, and you'll be able to buy. I mean, these companies are developing these things specifically for this purpose to to be domestic servants. And so, the other way to look at it, I reckon, is that we're heading into a new era of slavery. Uh, that um, for thousands of years human, humanity existed on using slaves uh, until it was abolished in eighteen fifty or so in the mid eighteen hundreds. And I think then uh, we'll look back. F- the future future historians will look back on the period of about two hundred years between 1850 and 2050, uh, when this was an aberration—a brief pe-
0: slave-free a, a, period—a
1: be- a brief period where we were paying for work done. And uh, in not too far into the distant future, we'll be having a whole lot of work done for nothing, as we are currently with robots in manufacturing in, in factories who are, you know, putting cars together uh, for free, right? They're not being paid. So we've got manufacturing slaves now. Are we going to have a new era of slavery, Stephen?
0: I uh, would just simply say to Alex, (laughs) don't believe the doomsday predictions. Remember how the Y2K bug was going to ruin us all? Driverless cars have been talked about forever. Where are they? I mean, they might get here one day. Um, And sometimes eliminated jobs are not missed, I mean, who wants to work in an underground coal mine or even in a call centre particularly? So, you know, and the universal basic income, I think, will come. Governments will be forced to do it. Um, And I think it makes a lot of sense, although there is a worry about the incentive productivity piece if you suddenly start giving everyone cash, whether they work or not. Um, But I'm nowhere near as gloomy. At the end of the day, humans control... AI and will deploy it, governments will regulate it, and it will not be allowed to create a world of slaves.
1: I'm just thinking of the the meme I often see on Twitter of, of a boy sitting in a burning room saying, this is fine. <laughs> That's you, Stephen.
0: Yeah, that is me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Delusional.
1: Uh, All right. Uh, so... Daddy says, I found Alan's conversation really interesting on how on uh, how despite all the talks of super funds uh, could invest in national built gov- building government projects, but in reality they can't. Then I read News Corp interview with the new Association of Super Funds of Australia's CEO, Mary Dallahunty, saying that super funds could find a way to invest, pending suitable returns, and that she could seek to talk to governments about this. Um, yeah, yeah, but the, 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 the p- bit in parenthesis, Danny, is pretty important, pending suitable returns. Yes, of course. Uh, they'll invest in national projects as long as the returns are okay. Yeah,
0: so they just want the I mean, government to subsidise the project, offer tax breaks, you know. the. Uh,
1: well, sure, but the point being that, you know, it doesn't change the fact that super funds uh, will not be, cannot be and won't be forced to invest in national projects at a lower return than they uh, would otherwise want. Correct.
0: So I agree. David says just listen to Alan James talking about China and I can confirm that after many trips to Hong Kong China over the past 12 months China is booming it's lazy to sit in australia and point at problems in the property sector asian demographics catch up come up with catchy words like japanification and right off the second largest economy in the world is going nowhere so david say so alan what do you reckon is china really booming and are we overstating the gloom about china oh,
1: look, I've, i found this really interesting and and i'm really th- Thanks, David, for doing, telling us about that. Uh, I mean, I've, hear, I've heard others come back from China saying the place is booming and yet we get the stats uh, and I get all these economic reports from people kind of uh, – from people in uh, – well, you know, in London and in New York, to be honest, knitting their brows and saying, you know, everything's terrible in China. Well, you know, people's come back saying it's actually booming. And so, I mean, I can't argue with that because I haven't been there. Sounds like it is.
0: Well, yeah. I think that the the problem they've got, I, I was catching up recently with someone who's very senior at one of our largest fast-moving consumer goods companies. I won't name them. And this person said that in the last five years since COVID, they have reduced their supply chain reliance on China from 70% to 30%. And for me... COVID and China's crazy geopolitical posturing has led to mass diversification, and people are not going with a one China policy. They're setting up in Vietnam and Indonesia and India, and they're going all over the place. And this has fundamentally hurt the Chinese economy. Hence, unemployment is up. Because that inbound investment by building factories in China has slowed dramatically because of the way they're carrying on geopolitically and because of that diversification need post-COVID. Well,
1: I don't know. I mean, look, uh, uh, one of the things David says is that uh, he's, he was driven in a driverless EV in Shenzhen last week. Well, that's uh, – I mean, I'd heard that China is actually leading the world in, in driverless cars. Mm. Uh, not just EVs, which they are. Well, I knew about that, but, I, but they're also leading the world in driverless cars. I mean, and that's—I think that's fascinating. Really. Um, I mean, uh, what, what are all the people? What are all the taxi drivers going to do? I mean, is another question, which gets back to the AI question before about what's everyone going to do when AI takes their job? Well, there's a bunch of taxi drivers, not just in China, but here and everywhere. And Uber drivers, what are they going to do?
0: I mean, I mean that's right. There's there's a seven percent of the workforce in driving jobs or something. Yeah, I think that is. If we do get fundamentally driverless trucks and cars, like the trains in the Pilbara, then that will be a massive disruptor for jobs. Yeah, probably one of the biggest in terms of the whole uh, AI revolution, because yeah. there's so many people working in driving jobs.
1: That's right. Not to mention call centre jobs. Indeed. Indeed. Which you wouldn't do, would you?
0: I would do it. I would do it. I just, well, sorry for being snobby before, Alan. That's a fair point. I withdraw that sledge against uh, the enjoyment of call centre work. I just wish they wouldn't call me all day offering things I don't want. That's another story. Now, Terry says, I love the podcast. I just wanted to ask if financial journalists could put a spotlight on the setting of the default market offer for electricity prices this May. I think setting the default market offer will be very important to cutting power bills and driving down sticky services inflation. And the process seems opaque and captured by the big electricity retailers.
1: Well, I don't think it's captured. I mean, the the default market offer is set by the Australian... Energy regulator. The
0: government, effectively, the regulator. Yeah, yeah
1: it's set by them.
0: It should have been done years ago as a stronger mechanism to the, control but the,
1: prices. But the problem that Alan Fells highlights is that the um, the generators uh, generators bid into the market every five minutes, and um, there's a lot of gaming going on, and they tend so sometimes the price, the electricity price, can go from five hundred dollars uh, to you know, ten thousand dollars in five minutes, um, and it jumps around all over the place. Uh, they would argue that on average, don't worry about it; it's fine because you know most a lot of the time it's very low and sometimes even negative. Then, then sometimes it goes to ten or twenty thousand uh, uh, dollars, whatever it is they sell on megawatt hour or something. Anyway, um, uh, Alan says that um, on average it's too high. Yeah. The, bit, the bidding, the generators, there aren't enough generators; not enough competition. And they do tend to game it so that the average price is higher than it should be. That's Mm -hmm. what he's saying. It's
0: interesting. uh, AGL, one of the big three gen tailors, had their profit out this morning. And uh, Damien Nix, the CEO, was really crowing about how their new Torrens Island big battery had been commissioned, was operating, and had generated $7 of EBITDA in the December quarter. And they're really excited now about their $750 million battery that they're building at the mothballed Liddell power station in uh, the Hunter Valley. And so they were saying their pipeline of of new projects has increased from 5.3 gigawatts to 5.8 gigawatts since they last updated the market in August. So AGL is really leaning in on their renewable energy investment and they're already talking about the the good economics of big batteries. $7 million profit in a quarter, from their Torrens Island one, which again was replacing an old power station. Now, Ben is saying that the recently proposed change to the threshold for someone being called a sophisticated investor is worthy of discussion at the moment. You can be have 200, 2.5 million in assets uh, and you can be called a sophisticated investor and this is proposed to be lifted to 4.5 million in assets and Ben is seeking to Challenge this saying that it's a bit rough to reduce the number of people who can call themselves sophisticated and get priority offers in sort of wholesale yeah, capital rates. Probably raising. should
1: explain what being nominated or well, being called a sophisticated investor involves because you, you get priority offers, but also you get less regulation, you don't have to be given so much in the way of paperwork and so on. Yes. I mean, that's, is, that, is that an accurate summary? That, do that's
0: you think? it, yeah. You, you, low dock offers, you don't need to see a prospectus, you know, you're presumed to be, it's buy where you're presumed to be a sophisticated, intelligent person, you don't need to be spelt out the basics about an investment.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of rich idiots about, so, you know, possibly the- We should protect them. The, the, no, well, no, well, possibly the the definition of sophisticated investors should involve something other than money.
0: I agree. It should be a, a, that you're a competent person. A competent person test, a comp, with... like being a, uh, given a, a license to drive a car. I mean, there's all sorts of competent person tests all over the place. So, for you to be a, officially a sophisticated investor, you need to pass some basic financial literacy competency test, uh, and you can be worth ten bucks or ten million. Um, there should be basic competency uh, in yeah. terms of being No, able- I'm
1: with you I think that's 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 right um, it isn't I mean there's a lot of people who who've got less much a lot less than two and two and a half million dollars who are sophisticated and should be treated as their sophi- as if they're sophisticated yeah
0: I'll tell you the really stupid the most stupid thing I've seen with this was the 2022 Design and Distribution Obligations Regulation, which effectively made it tougher to be considered sophisticated. So when the banks were rolling over billions of dollars of hybrid investments owned by tens of thousands of retail shareholders, all of a sudden they felt that they couldn't offer those same shareholders who already were lending the bank money through these hybrids, could be offered to roll over into the next one because they weren't officially sophisticated and they'd be accused of offering up, you know, being reckless offering up these sophisticated products to people who are unsophisticated. And all of a sudden, people got compulsorily taken out of these hybrids and not offered a chance to uh, roll over into the next one. Well, that is hopeless, isn't it? It is hopeless. And it's an overreaction by the banks post-Hayne as well. They could have just batted on and said... But they took the really conservative view. Oh, look... We don't think it's too risky for our brand. Well, that's because
1: their are lawyers and internal lawyers and compliance department said, oh, you can't do that.
0: Yeah, so tens of thousands of retail shareholders got cashed out against their wishes without even being asked, um, and it was just regulation gone mad. Well, Stephen, as always, it's been uh, an interesting pleasure <laughs> to talk to you. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you at a fortnight, Alan. Yep. And uh, don't forget to, as you always say, send in your questions to Alan and James next week. What's the email address again, Alan?
1: The Money Cafe at Eureka And thanks to Greg, our wonderful producer, as always. Hear, hear. Roll on, Greg. Uh, I'll see you in a fortnight. I'll see James Thompson next Thursday in The Money Cafe. See you later. I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc.
0: And I'm Stephen Mayne. We'll see you in a fortnight.